This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. We stay on this all-important topic of the war in Ukraine. Even if we believe that Putin is fatiguing, even if the intelligence may point that way, uh, that certainly we don't count him out until it is over. Abigail Spanberger, former CIA operative and current member of Congress from Virginia's 7th District. I think that it's incredibly important that we continue to have our eyes clearly focused on what is happening in Ukraine uh, and that it continues to stay in the forefront of our media coverage, of our discussions on Capitol Hill and, and certainly throughout the country. And in her own backyard. What I find interesting is that across the district, I routinely hear um, continued calls for American engagement and American support of our Ukrainian allies. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. She spent years in Europe handling spies and recruiting them. She specialized in counterterrorism and nuclear proliferation. She was thinking about rising up the ranks of the CIA. But then the U.S. got turned on its head and Abigail Spanberger decided to put that aside and run for Congress. She became Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger from the 7th District of Virginia. She's been doing a lot and has a lot to say about some very consequential issues. Representative Spanberger, thank you for taking time to do this. You've been a very busy woman, uh, well, always, at least since I've known anything about you, uh, and certainly during your time in Congress. And I'm pretty sure... um, Within the last month or so, you've been pretty busy, too. It's my understanding that you were part of a delegation that went to El Salvador um, a couple weeks ago, maybe even more recent than that. You can tell us about that. But um, um, what was the purpose of that visit and what did you learn? Absolutely. So I just went to El Salvador and Guatemala with a congressional delegation trip. And uh, and the purpose of this trip, and we had a representative from uh, Armed Services, from the Appropriations Committee, from Homeland Security, uh, and then I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, the purpose of this trip was to talk about and, and dig into some of the root causes of migration, the impact of migration, uh, what's happening from a government system. Uh, uh, perspective on the ground in El Salvador and Guatemala, also from a civil society perspective and a business investment uh, perspective, and on the ground to try and mitigate outbound migration. Um, And then also it was to discuss how U.S. aid dollars uh, that are flowing into those two countries um, are or are not working, um, could be optimized, or how they are being uh, utilized on the ground to 
to get at this goal of ensuring that there's enough stability or uh, enough opportunity within the country that those who you know want to stay in their country of birth, want to stay in your family, um, have economic opportunity and stability at home so that they are not um, perceiving fleeing their country as, as the optimal choice. It was also interesting to receive some feedback um, and in discussions with government officials about you know, some of the poll factors, uh, as we call them, that exist um, uh, with a deputy secretary of labor uh, spoke very openly about the fact that um, there are many jobs when people come to the country, regardless of whether they have legal uh, working status, that they're hearing from their friends who have preceded them in that um, in that uh, move to the United States, that there are jobs, jobs, jobs. If you come, we can get you a job. And uh, this particular deputy secretary was saying, you know, this is one of the problems that exists is that, uh, you know, within the United States, there are many companies and, and many entities that continue to hire people without status. And so it's hard for her to say, stay here and work um, when, when the jobs uh, continue to be available. Uh, so the, there are a variety of sort of takeaways, uh, pieces of legislation that we'll be working on, certainly questions for us to continue to ponder, but um, it, it was a really valuable trip for a variety of reasons. What do you think was the most important thing if you had to pick one thing or the biggest, the most impactful thing? that you either saw, learned, heard, or came away with? Oh, that's a difficult question. I, I think that one of the most heartening things, I'm gonna answer my own question now, JJ, sorry. Uh, one of the most heartening things was seeing the real desire, uh, and particularly uh, a number of places that we visited in El Salvador, where there are business leaders who are trying to build businesses within El Salvador, trying to give people the skill set. Uh, to be able to earn a, a reasonable, good living so that they uh, have the ability to stay home and build up El Salvador. Um, and, and we visited one particular nearshoring tech business where they're building out software for American companies and they're bringing in young Salvadorans who have an interest in IT, who have an interest in programming and teaching them through a pretty extensive internship program to be able to do software and website development. Uh, and then they're bringing them great opportunities. And so to see um, that, that so much of what motivates these uh, business leaders is in fact to give opportunities uh, to their, their fellow Salvadorans for the purposes of creating the opportunity that will allow them to stay home, that will kind of mitigate in some cases people's desire or need to leave the country and, uh, and, and the fact that they, they do it so clearly trying to build up uh, their nation. And so I thought that was a extremely heartening uh, thing to witness. And, and certainly uh, from an American business perspective, seeing the, the value that it also uh, brings to American businesses to be able to work with partners, you know, in, in uh, the, in the same hemisphere. Uh, and and to be able to to um, you know partner with kind of neighboring countries is 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 pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's also important too that you share that particular uh, anecdote because um, a lot of what we hear about that region is typically pretty negative. As somebody who yeah. has who speaks the language and has spoken that language for many years and have worked and lived in Latin America for a long time. Uh, in periods of time, 
I, I see exactly the importance of what you're talking about, the impact of telling that story, because this day and time, things happen so quickly, people just, you know, they miss things. But I'm glad you shared that. Moving on to the next thing, you, you're, in, you're, you're involved in a lot, and one of the things that you were involved in before you took this very important role on was working at the Central Intelligence Agency and some of the work that the agency has been doing, um, certainly within the last 20-some years, it has been chasing down al-Qaeda. And um, Ayman al-Zawari was killed about a week or so ago, the new leader, of the last leader of al-Qaeda. And one of the things that yes. popped into my head, and I wanted to ask you about this, when Osama bin Laden was killed, we had known for a very long time who would be his successor. But with this situation, him being killed, we've heard the name Saif al-Adil, and for those who aren't familiar with him, he was on the original Most Wanted poster. But we don't really know as much about who might be next or what might be coming. What what can you share with us about your thoughts about first the killing and, and what to expect next? Uh, well, certainly I, I want to say thank you to all of the members of the intelligence community who have continued for years uh, to search for him to, to find um, Al-Zawahiri recognizing his role in the murder of Americans. And, you know, this is what makes me proud of the um, men and women I used to work with within the intelligence community and, and particularly within CIA is there's just such a focus on um, seeking truth and seeking facts and knowing that eventually, eventually you will find what it is that you're looking for. That's certainly uh, bore out in the multi-year search for Osama bin Laden, and now for the multi-decade search uh, for al-Zawahiri. Uh, and so, in terms of what comes next, uh, I would, you know, defer to those who continue to be area experts on the the networks and nodes of Al Qaeda and its offshoots. Uh, but it is very, very clear that. Um, there isn't necessarily just the next chapter of what comes next from for Al-Qaeda. Um, certainly, we see splintering within various different terrorist organizations, um, and, and that continues to pose real risks uh, for the United States and our Western allies. Uh, but I, I think the, the reality that we have been so focused and that we have brought to account and to justice you know, those who have been the central figures in, in not just orchestrating, but in fact, masterminding uh, the murder of Americans is, uh, is, is something that I'm, I'm grateful for the work of, of uh, the, the men and women of the intelligence agencies who have uh, been focused for years. And, you know, at this point, we continue to see threats that exist, but they're um, in, a, in a more dispersed uh, and, and divided sense. Um, and, and the world continues to face danger and, and challenges. Um, and what I, what I have noted at times for those who, who you know, have a background very different from yours, JJ, but who haven't spent a lot of time um, kind of immersed in intelligence-related issues is what's often, what's always unknown is are all the threats that the intelligence community stopped, are all of the potential attacks uh, that the intelligence community was able to thwart. Um, either overseas or in partnership with law enforcement entities here at home uh, to keep Americans safe and to, to keep our partners and allies safe. And so 
the, the good work of uh, our intelligence agencies, I think, continue uh, to be a real uh, central point of pride, uh, particularly in the global war on terror. As much as it's changed, uh, it, it's it's not it's not yet complete. Yeah, that's just that, that's a question I wanted to ask a really quick follow up on. Looking at Al Qaeda, looking at ISIS, looking at what took place in Afghanistan after the Taliban said, no, we're not going to go here. We're not going to do this, yeah. but they ended up doing it anyway. Um, what do you think the risk is for the U.S. at this point in terms of uh, terrorism is concerned? I think what we've seen is that it continues to be a, a more of a dispersed risk. Uh, we see you know, what sometimes can be classified as lone wolf attacks. We see um, certainly the the reality that on the ground certain you know, areas in Africa, certainly Syria, Afghanistan, uh, that that there are elements and and terrorist related organizations, if not terrorist organizations themselves, uh, that continue to have uh, you know, frankly, far more power on the ground uh, than the United States. Um, uh, well, not to speak for the entirety of the country, then I think that most of us um, are are comfortable with, but also the sort of outbound organized efforts to attack Western interests um, and the United States specifically, um, thank goodness, is not something that we're seeing currently. And, and again, you know, that's that is directly correlative to the strong work of our intelligence community and our partners throughout the world who have worked uh, to fight terrorism, uh, certainly in in the region uh, and throughout Europe and across the United States. Yeah. And speaking of the United States, let's get back to some of the the, the global business that the U.S. Um, has to deal with that doesn't deal with terrorism per se, but it's just as problematic. And one thing is this war in, in Ukraine right now. And what you have seen, I'm, I'm certain you get a lot of classified briefings and you learn a lot that you can't share and say and discuss um, in this setting. But I'm kind of I'm, I'm very interested in what your thoughts are about how long you think Russia is going to be able to keep this up. What what is it that they're because every day we see signs that it looks as though they're running out of steam. Um, and we've actually yeah. heard that from Richard Moore from MI6 saying that a few weeks ago. But what's your what do you see in terms of this war aside from the obvious atrocities and the illegal nature of this war? What else do you see there? Well, certainly I see that there, um, even if we believe that Putin is fatiguing, even if the intelligence may point that way, uh, that certainly we don't count him out until it is over. Uh, and so I think that it's incredibly important that we continue to have our eyes clearly focused on what is happening in Ukraine uh, and that it continues to stay in the forefront of our media coverage, of our discussions on Capitol Hill and, and certainly throughout the country. And uh, as an American and as an American legislator, I am proud that I have continued to be supportive of the Ukrainian cause for freedom uh, and their own independence. And the United States, the, the White House has just announced new shipments of weapons um, directly from Pentagon stockpiles. And so at that point, that will bring total U.S. aid to more than $9 billion. Uh, and, and what I find interesting is that across the district, I routinely hear um, continued calls for American engagement and American support of our Ukrainian allies um, from people across our district, and in particular from from veterans uh, who recognize, or or active duty military as well, who who recognize that there's kind of two things relevant in this 
in this issue. One, the very cause for freedom and the, the, the very existence of the Ukrainian democracy is on the line. And this is an opportunity for the United States, the, the oldest democracy, to stand up for and support um, our partner, uh, our friend, our ally, uh, Ukraine, but also a, a fellow uh, democracy that at this point is, is under threat. Um, and it's also incredibly important, and I'm sure many of your listeners are fully aware, that any incursions beyond Ukraine become an entirely different challenge for the United States. Uh, the minute Russia sets its eyes on uh, a NATO partner state, then U.S. engagement uh, has to change completely, um, you know, by, uh, by, by the very sort of requirements of um, our collective defense agreements. And so it's imperative that we help the Ukrainians beat the Russians. Um, one, so that we are doing it in support of democracy kind of across the board, uh, but also so that we are mitigating any risk that they may decide to keep on moving uh, past the Ukrainian border uh, and into a fight where at that point it would be a direct uh, U.S. an issue of direct U.S. engagement. One quick follow up on that. I don't get into politics because that's just not my thing. And um, I try to keep a very narrow focus on national security, but sometimes they cross. And when they cross, right. you got to deal with it. One of the things that's come up is that there may be a change in um, the, you know, the House, Senate, <laughs> leadership, ownership, whatever. Um do you think this dedication, this interest the U.S., the legislators, you and your fellow legislators have had to help Ukraine would change if the leadership of the House and Senate changed? I think there are some risks to that. I think that for those of us, you know, and I, I'm a Democrat um, and I'm also you know, proud to be one of the most bipartisan members of Congress because I think that you get things done by building out broad coalitions. And certainly there is a broad coalition of people who support Ukraine, their fight for freedom, um, who are fully behind the idea that the United States has a role to play, not just in uh, providing uh, weapons, as, as I've discussed, but as in providing information, providing uh, assistance dollars, providing uh, communication support, and and rallying our neighbors both uh, in support of Ukraine and um, in opposition to Russia, um, and and I think that the the you know the majority and it bears out in our votes the majority of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle feel that way. However, the reality is that there are also very worrisome uh, voices uh, on the Republican side of the aisle um, that have parroted um, Kremlin talking points that have been critical of the Ukrainians that have questioned and, and in fact uh, questioned using uh, what we know to be Russian propaganda, you know, this idea of why are we spending these dollars in Ukraine when we could be spending them on X purpose here back home in the United States, which, um, you know, if, if asked in a sincere way, we should always be kind of questioning why we spend every dollar. I'm all for financial responsibility with the taxpayer dollar. Uh, but the reality is that there's a big push uh, of Russian propaganda trying to make this a divisive issue. And it is resonating um, in particular on the far right side of the aisle. Uh, and that is incredibly dangerous. 
so far, we have seen um, House Republican leadership continues to support our Ukrainian counterparts. Um, but I, I do have worries that with the growing chorus that that exists on, on that side of the aisle, um, how long that support can maintain. Um, yeah. Whereas on the Democratic side of the aisle, it is consistent, pervasive, and without doubt. Um, so my hope is, regardless of what happens in the elections, and of course, I do spend my days in politics, so I, uh, of course, want the Democrats to hold the House. Um, but but my, my expectation is that um, those who are thoughtful, yeah. purposeful legislators will continue to have the loudest voices on these very existential, frankly, issues of the safety and security of our Democratic allies and partners uh, and also recognize the real impact and risks that exist to our own country's safety and security yeah. uh, if if we don't play that that role of support on the world stage. Yep, you are exactly right about that. May the, the the voices of reason prevail. And 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 back to that Russian propaganda thing. I remember very clearly. I think it was 2019, hearing mm-hmm. Fiona Hill say this is a fictional narrative, but still hearing some people continuing to do exactly okay. what you were saying, parroting those those that narrative that that Russian narrative. And it was just beyond my understanding why that was happening, especially in Congress. Okay. Uh, and it's it's worrisome. And I, I think that, you know, uh, to kind of go back a couple of years, if we look back to the first impeachment of President Trump, it related directly to the fact that he um, was willing to withhold military assistance to Ukraine um, in an effort to try and compel them to provide information uh, falsified or otherwise related to a political opponent. And so, you know, I think that sometimes we don't we don't always like to go back to that time because it was you know we continue to have challenges in this country so we don't need to go back to old ones um but it is so central to where we are now because for those of us with a national security background for those of us who are going to focus on these uh international relations issues the the clarity of concern related to the state of uh ukraine's democracy and their autonomy uh has always been at risk and that's why we have for years provided them with security assistance. And that's why it was so vital that that, that security assistance never fall um, in, into doubt. Um, and so moving forward, um, it is highly important that uh, people recognize the threat that exists on the ground and, and, and frankly recognize the role of US global leadership um, in, in not just continuing to, to support our Ukrainian allies, but um, in recognizing the narrative that the Russians are going to try and push. And, you know, I, I reflect on this at times that it's stunning to me that when we know, and we know because our intelligence community is telling us it's getting reported broadly in the press, we know, we know, we know that the Russians are trying to push certain propaganda topics, certain narratives to their own political gains. Uh, it, it, I want our coordinated American response to be absolutely not. We're the United States of America. How dare you, Russia, try to come at us with propaganda? Um, but unfortunately, they continue to be pretty successful at, at creeping in various places uh, to the to the detriment at times of the political discussion related to national security issues. Yeah. Well, um, just one more uh, thing I'd like to, to touch on with you before we go. Speaking of national security issues, and this is a tough one, too, just as probably tougher 
if you know if you look at Russia and and what Russia is doing, but this is the situation with China and Taiwan. You know, mm. some years ago, uh, the former head of the CIA, Mike Hayden, told me the one thing the U.S. needs to get right in the future is this thing with China, and yeah. um, I'm not sure that we have. Um, what's your thought or view on that? Where we stand with China and this Taiwan situation? Uh, so I would agree with you, JJ. I don't think that we have. And I think that there's a couple areas of missed opportunity or not fully realized opportunity. So, of course, there's the reality of, of, kind of the, the challenge of China and Taiwan. Um, and, and while we seem to focus on what's happening in the region, our relationship with Taiwan, you know, China's uh, aggression where it does or doesn't exist towards Taiwan, where we should be, I think, paying much more attention um, as a, a preventative measure uh, to China's ability to really potentially ever overtake Taiwan in the way that they might want to or be able to leverage international support is we need to look at what China is doing throughout Africa, throughout Central and South America, right? And and I hear, we I've been part of these conversations for years and years and years where we recognize between the Belt and Road Initiative and we recognize with the sorts of investments that, that China is making throughout the world, that they are attempting to, to curry favor and build up some level of dependency uh, for other countries on China. And there are real opportunities for us, the United States of America, to ensure that we are strengthening our own relationships, you know, specific, especially within our hemisphere. And, and, and this goes back to the some of the discussions that we had um, in El Salvador and Guatemala, actually, we visited a textile um, uh, factory where there's near shoring of clothing production by a U.S. producer uh, that much of which, some of which used to uh, occur within China. And so rather than spending money and pouring money into the Chinese economy, moving that to our own hemisphere, not only bringing jobs into our own hemisphere, potentially kind of addressing some of the root causes of migration, but also um, ensuring that we are getting the, the goods that might have been otherwise produced uh, in other parts of the world, bringing that back home to our hemisphere. Those are the sorts of investments that on paper may not seem directly related as being you know, focused on China and Taiwan. Um, but indeed, if there's ever a point in time when we need to have a UN resolution or when we need to join with our partners and allies, we wanna make sure that there is no question that every country in our hemisphere, and, and we are certainly not there yet, and we saw it with the uh, UN votes related to Ukraine, uh, that every country in our hemisphere at a minimum has their eyes kind of directly northward on us um, as, as the partner that we are, as the investor that we are. Um, and I think long range, those are some of the steps that we can take to be preventative in allowing for China to think that they might have a chance uh, on the world stage to overtake Taiwan. And then, of course, there's our own economic interests right now with uh, semiconductor production, you know, the vast majority of which occurs within Taiwan, uh, ensuring the stability of our own supply chain so that, you know, if there ever is some sort of conflict, God forbid, that we're not doubly troubled by, one, the decision of how we do or do not help our, our partner and our ally Taiwan, but then also uh, that we're not doubly impacted by the reality that we might then not be able to 
produce cars or dishwashers, uh, not to mention, you know, weapon systems here in the United States. Um, so I, to answer your question, I, I think there's certainly so much more that we could be doing. Um, and uh, there's a lot of areas of opportunity. And, and I, I do hope that certainly seeing what we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, so many people like to make the analogy between uh, China and Taiwan. I, I, it's certainly not a one for one. Um, but as long as the circumstance in Ukraine has gotten people really thinking aggressively um, and, and frequently about the circumstances in, in Taiwan, um, right now we have the time and space to do many, many things to be proactive to strengthen our relationships and to mitigate potentially some of uh, China's ambitions. Uh, but, you know, every day we're not taking those actions, I think is a wasted opportunity. And so that I continue to, to push for that, you know, even trying to bring uh, manufacturing of, of prescription drugs back home to the United States um, as a way to kind of lessen our dependency uh, on China, but also to lessen kind of dollars flowing into an economy that, um, the, you know, could could potentially cause us trouble if if we uh, don't sort of mitigate again some of the the ambitions they may have on the world stage. Well, that is uh, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, the seventh district of Virginia. Thank you, as a son of Virginia and somebody who spends an awful lot of time there still, even though I don't live there residentially, um, with family though still. Um, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the time you gave us today, the clarity and the candor with which you spoke about these issues. Uh, is there anything you want to add briefly that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Um, I, I just want to say thank you for your coverage of these important issues. And certainly thank you for uh, your your uh, past work as a journalist, bringing a lot of light and understanding to the work of our, our military service members um, as, as they've deployed in various places throughout the world. And I would say Virginia always welcomes you back, JJ, if you ever decide to move back to the great Commonwealth. Well, I, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I'm just what, <laughs> six miles from there. <laughs> Although I'm from the South of Virginia, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm not going okay. anywhere. I mean, I spend enough time in Virginia every other week or so. So, you know, I mean, of course- We'll still claim you. <laughs> I mean, the taxes might help too, huh? But anyway, uh, Representative, thank you so much for your time and for your work and for your, your diligence and everything that you bring to Congress, the state of Virginia, the country and the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, he was 52 years old, well-to-do, a Latvian-born American investor and financial executive. He died this past Sunday after falling from a building in Georgetown. Initial signs pointed to suicide, but others are pointing to foul play because his name was Dan Rappaport, a very vocal critic of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. The Russian community and Ukrainian community in this country truly believes, whether they're paranoid or not, that Putin using his intelligence services is going to start or has been killing people in the United States. Former CIA operative Robert Bayer joins us to explain. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast 
and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts.